0: Welcome to the podcast series, Creating Diverse Worlds, Speculative Fiction. I'm your host, Yoshita Shavasav. I'm the Literature Collective Associate at Belong. Speculative fiction is an umbrella term covering fantasy, science fiction, dystopia, and everything in between. Speculative fiction has a vibrant and radical tradition of stories that can make us think, can critique society, and can show us how it could be otherwise, for better or worse. As writers from marginalized communities occupy space in the literary landscape, These genres aid in alternate world building. Sometimes they might work to reinvent world order or hold up a mirror to the evils of our reality. In this podcast series, we will speak to authors who have tugged at the horizons of our imagination and focused this chance to create their own inclusive worlds. Our guest for today is Julian K. Jarbo. Julian is a writer and artist from Massachusetts they write short fiction, poetry, games, and stage plays, and their visual art typically incorporates text and audio. Everyone on the Moon is a Central Personnel is their first book. Thank you, Julian, for joining us today. And Thank you
1: so um, much for having me.
0: <laughs> and I would like to start this conversation with like a pretty, I think, a, a really broad net of questions, uh, sure. which is basically just ask. I think I'm asking everyone this because while researching speculative fiction, it was really difficult. I don't think there's one definition for it, for the genre. And it's, it's such a slippery kind of uh, umbrella term that covers fantasy, science fiction, dystopia, and everything in between. Mm-hmm. So Personally, what do you understand by this genre? And also, why did you choose to center your stories in an alternate universe?
1: Yeah. So it's a good question. And uh, you could, you could sort of make a case if you were feeling very, very, you know, very, very technical about it, you could make the case that, of course, all fiction is speculative fiction, because it's all about things that haven't actually happened. (laughs) But, you know, that will probably get you an eye roll from most writers. So (laughs) for me, speculative fiction is first and foremost about a way to extend and heighten point of view in a way that's not possible in what we understand as realist fiction and uh, realist fiction doesn't necessarily mean that every single thing that happens in it is plausible or possible per se but it has it has that sense of veracity right it, it and there's a couple of sort of uh periods of time and styles that are strongly associated with realism, even though they're not synonymous. So a lot of times people think of like really, you know, hard, hard hard-boiled sort of like domestic realism as, as a, you know, of the modern, mostly English and North American writers, you know, as a sort of type of er realism. But, uh, you know, that's not the case. There's all kinds of stuff. Uh, For me, speculative fiction is, is a funny thing because for a long time, the genre pulp was was kind of off on its own. And there was science fiction and fantasy and horror. And and then all, all of a sudden came this term speculative fiction as a way to kind of knit them all together. But it also has a sort of, it has kind of a refined sound to it. It sounds a little better than the pulp genre labels. And I think because uh, people were starting to realize that A lot of literary fiction is, of course, speculative, too, and we need a we need a wider umbrella to describe these things. So, you know, actually, a lot of things that aren't called speculative fiction are they're surreal or magically real or they take on some kind of fabulous logic or something like that. So it's a useful term to basically say, you know, I'm I'm fully aware that the things that happen in what I write are impossible. And that's sort of the idea. For me, for me, it's a, it's a, it's all about point of view. Uh, so every once in a while, you know, I, I sort of get an idea that's a little bit more down to earth, but uh, I'm always very interested in finding who in a story has the most to lose and what emotionally at the core of the story can be uh, heightened. So, you know, if something feels a certain way, I really want to bring that to the front and center. If something, if someone, you know, has a certain perspective, I really kind of want to make them almost more tunnel vision about how they think and feel. And in doing that, a lot of the times it makes more sense to build a world around that character or that emotion that bends to them and not vice versa. And so I end up making these worlds where a lot of impossible things happen uh, because. It's it's kind of the world that I need to tell the kind of story that I want to tell, so that's my overly long answer. <laughs> but <laughs> the short, the short, the too long didn't read short version is is speculative fiction for me personally is a way of extending point of view.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that does that that sounds really beautiful as a, as a as a line as well. <laughs> but. Yeah, but. <laughs> But no, I get what you're saying. Even when I was researching about it, I thought the same that isn't every fiction just made up? <laughs> so can't you yeah, call no everything no. speculative? <laughs> yeah, but but your definition is, is really, the sentiment is pretty beautiful. that It, it does center, it does expand a perspective. Yeah. And I think that flows really well to my next question as well. That when we're talking about alternate universes, I was really fascinated by the worlds that you created in your collection, Everyone on the Moon is Essential Personnel. The settings seem uncomfortably familiar. Even stories like As As Tender Feet of Cretan Girls Danced Once Around an Altar of Love, which is inspired from a myth, the protagonist feels pretty human, seeking lost love and contemplating memories. So what is your process of world building? i think you 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 answered some of that already but mm-hmm. if you want to ex- expand on it that'd be great and also do you have any advice for sff newbies who are trying to create their own worlds
1: yeah i do actually and for a long time i i think i was a little too bashful about it but at this point i'm willing to say i do have a specific piece of advice and I can talk, I can actually tell you how, as Tender Feet of and Girls Dance Once Around an Altar of Love, I know that's a mouthful of a title, but I can tell you how that story came into existence with this process. So yes. that very lengthy title is a, a quotation of a translation of Sappho, which is why it's such a long title because it's a full Sappho fragment. And so, you know, I was reading some poetry, basically, Uh, I was reading, I was reading these Sappho fragments at the same time that I was reading a a nonfiction book by an academic named Kathy Gere. And the book is called Nosos and the Prophets of Modernism. And so she writes a really interesting, critical archaeology perspective on the archaeological dig of uh, NOSOS and the sort of projection backwards of mythological ideas onto a real place, which took place in the 19th and 20th century, from these sort of like Victorian self-taught archaeologists who uh, committed a lot of what modern archaeologists would would call breaches in ethics, among other things. <laughs> and so it's it's a it's a great it's a great book. She uh, Kathy Gear talks. Uh, a lot about what specifically in, you know, these sort of early archaeology sites, it was sort of like reconstructed to suit the storytelling sensibilities of mostly like English men who who were kind of just going around the world, digging stuff up and trying to kind of take their claim on it. And so I was uh, reading that. And then I found this reference to Crete in Sappho. And I had also been reading a number of different versions of the story of Dr. Faust, which is the classic story of a deal with Mm -hmm. the devil. And there are versions of Dr. Faust. There are so many, but in, in some versions, the, the specific devil companion character of Mephistopheles has a much more human, if not kind of tragic and sympathetic tone. So, what's very interesting to me about that is there were cases in which you know, actually Mephistopheles is like the more interesting character in this story. We kind of know that that Faust is damned, but here's this sort of like eternal you know devil who's not necessarily happy about going through with all these motions, and so these were just all things I was reading at the same time, mm-hmm. and I know that that sounds super broad and unrelated. And that's actually my point. So my biggest piece of advice is to combine interests and material that you think don't have anything to do with each other. So in reading all of these things, I got the idea for a character who had lived long enough to see something that really happened in their life become the subject of like uh, archaeological dig and historic storytelling. And to be frustrated by sort of all the inaccuracies of that, but really to have a personal stake in it. And so uh, the kind of three thousand year-old world-weary attitude comes out of reading all these uh, all these Mephistopheles characters, and especially um, the main character in that story has a kind of like gender shifting as well as shape-shifting uh, yes. power. Yeah. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's directly inspired by some of the older versions of Dr. Faust from Mephistopheles, mm. very antigenous, very almost kind of like, almost like anti-hero figure of, of their own. And so that's where that character voice came from. I was really <laughs> inspired by that. And then I placed it into a fictional world that was uh, heavily based on the research of Kathy Gere. And I definitely checked my story with real archaeologists and I got the archaeology thumbs up. So it was important to me that that was very solid. And the rest was just, you know, was just drawn from making stuff up. I had visited the, the islands off of Portugal that some of the contemporary action takes place in. And I had gone there alone when I was very lonely and I was just sort of able to draw on those emotions of feeling like really mm. far away from any relevance to the world. So this is sort of, a, again, a long answer, but I'm I'm trying to sort of show that like the story actually comes from like really, really different parts of my life and different interests. And, and I really strongly encourage speculative fiction writers to not... To not be afraid of combining things that don't seem like they have anything in common take a take a personal experience and combine it with something that you had to read for school, and then also you know something that you stayed up all night reading about online. it it's you can you can mix and match. You don't have to necessarily find connections between obvious things. So if you mm-hmm. really love a certain type of character, place them in a new environment, retell a story with a character from a different story, that kind of thing. I think it really helps generate a much more original focus to what you're trying to do.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's pretty good advice. And I was also thinking about, I remember reading Dr. Faustus for school, like for college only, Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. And mm-hmm. yeah, like Mephistoph- Mephistopheles was my favorite character. Throughout the play, uh, the character is so sarcastic all the time. It's super snarky. Love,
1: love the energy. So yeah, so you, so you read the Marlowe for school? Yeah, we did. So the the Marlowe is my favorite version. <laughs> and there are all these really heavy-hitting contemporary tellings of it that are, yeah. like, really serious. Like, there's the mm. Thomas Bond version, which is very heavy. You know, there's all these other, you know, takes on Faust. Fels- but I love the Marlowe and <laughs> and the the Mephistopheles there is just like kind of like sardonic and I think has a line yeah. that's like oh this is hell nor am I out of it yeah and I'm yeah. kind of like oh and that was like that was definitely the character energy that I wanted to bring to something else
0: yeah I can absolutely see it now can you say it in the story uh yeah and like I think that's a that's great advice to pull from different different stories and your own emotions and from everywhere I think that does make for a really interesting read. So I think the next question also I think flows well from your advice about pulling from different sources and I was thinking about how a lot of your stories also reflect the injustices of the real world and all that is going wrong around us. Do you think SFF presents a unique opportunity to write about such issues and also to house marginalized voices. Because stories like self-care, my, my noise will keep the record, portray in economic and climate collapse. There are many mm-hmm. non-fiction texts with data sets telling us of the warning signs. So I think I'm, I'm sure that you must have thought about it as I think all writers do. <laughs> what role mm-hmm. do you think SFF or fiction in general have in this kind of a discourse? And how do you write about such
1: issues without sounding didactic? It's a good question. There's a couple of different things going on in that decision. The first is that if I really just want to say something and I feel like it could be an essay, I'll probably write an essay. I don't put things in fiction that are one-dimensional that I want to say. And you know for example caring about climate change is 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 one thing that i care about but that isn't enough to sustain you know a uh, message fiction or something like that right there has to be a little bit more to it otherwise you do become didactic that's not to say that some people don't find my work didactic occasionally i get feedback from readers who think it's really heavy handed and it might be, but I'm not really trying to be like subtle for the sake of mystery and artistry. I'm trying to, like I said, heighten a point of view. And so some of the things that I write to some people, even with all the other elements that I put in there, it might still come off as didactic to them. And like, that's OK. I, I actually, you know, give my characters committed perspectives and th- that may or may not be my own. but yeah, it, it, if that comes through in the fiction, then I guess the character's successful. So like, whatever. So so part of it is kind of, the difference between didactic and a really strong character voice is how believable you you make <laughs> the didacticism, right? So uh, yeah, yeah, I don't set out to write fiction in order to deliver moral lessons. Hmm. I, I set out to write fiction to reflect an experience or or an emotional state or 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 question that i have much more than an answer and so i tread very carefully when it comes to people asking oh do you think that stories can change the world do you think that you know fiction can be a political action uh, i think i would be hard pressed to say yes right i if i had to if i had to say i don't necessarily think that art on its own can change the world. I think that people can change the world, but I don't know that storytelling is and isn't as powerful almost as, as we, as we talk about it. I think what it can do is connect people who are kind of like already thinking about similar things. It can make you feel less alone. It can show you uh, something that you wouldn't be able to understand from a data set. So it's possible that something that is very abstract and uninteresting as a very factual data set might simply make more sense in a storytelling form. And that's just sort of like we're social creatures. We, at the end of the day, kind of need a way to relate things back to people. So so it can do that. And I don't want to say that it's useless, but I, I want to be really careful about what kind of power I ascribe to, to fiction. I'm not really sure. And and it's, it's always kind of like a, a big open-ended question anytime I publish something, honestly. And like there's there are personal and spiritual dimensions to the things that are happening in our world that the news and the data sets will never capture and those are important too and I don't really make predictions I'm trying to reflect what I see already happening right so i guess, so you you use the phrase warning signs right yeah. like i think i think the the thing that i i will i will say is that when i when the climate when climate fiction for example, or, or marginalized experiences come in, come into my work, I'm not necessarily trying to say this is what will happen, or this is what Mm. could happen. I'm really trying to reflect this is already happening. And that's, Mm. that's where I'm drawing inspiration is something that has already happened, which actually, I, I know that you were going to ask me about my phrase mid apocalyptic. Yeah, but but a, a partial answer to that, not a complete, but a partial answer to that, is that you know, like climate change is already here, right? Mm. Oppression and uh, and and you know disenfranchisement are already are already here. So it, it's not a thing that I have to worry about happening. It's certainly a thing I can worry about getting worse. Mm. But uh, some of the some of the most amazing science fiction that I've seen that addresses climate change has come out of places like the Philippines. There's a there's an incredible speculative fiction world coming out of the Philippines. And and it's like, right, like that kind of makes sense. I I look I look I can look at those data sets and understand why, right? Like some of the first biggest consequences of global climate change are, are probably felt very acutely. in in some parts of the world more than others, you know? So for some people it's a warning sign, for other people it's the present. And I think Mm -hmm. I live in a coastal town and there are certain things uh, that are not the future to me, they're the present because I can see what's happening with the sea level. And there are other things that I don't have to deal with but I know are reality for for people now. So I guess guess, uh, to avoid being didactic it's it's important to remember that like you're starting with uh, a perspective, a an experience, and you're and if if what you're trying to say has sort of one message, you you probably should write an essay. But if if you kind of want to explore other sides of it, then then storytelling is is a really good way to reflect that.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for that perspective. Yeah, even I was thinking about how. Uh, yeah, because so I have studied like literature and I have thought a lot about the, you know, the, the part that literature plays in social justice, even the work um, that my organization does. And earlier I was also pretty idealized about like, okay, books will change the world. But I think the extent to which it can really do anything is to teach a little bit of empathy. And I agree like right. by what you were saying about how, these characters they do connect you to people who are being like you do when you're reading you do take on these like you become you see the world through the perspective of the characters and having marginalized voices or people dealing with climate crisis and stuff like that does I think affect yeah even a little bit
1: I don't, I don't want to be discouraging. You know what I mean? I think I would sound like a real sourpuss if I just said, I don't (laughs) think art does anything. I don't, I don't think art does nothing or I wouldn't be doing it. Right. Hmm, But but I, I'm, I try to be very careful about what kind of power we do ascribe to it just because Hmm. it's easy to feel like we did something when we've actually just started the first step of something bigger, you know, Hmm. Hmm.
0: Totally agree. Um, and uh, moving on to your, to the next question, and as you already explained a little bit about your, about calling your collection mid uh, apocalyptic, I was also curious because the I think your book came out when the pandemic just hit us, or like in the middle of the yep. pandemic, and yep. as a I'm sure you you must have a lot of like thoughts about as a speculative fiction writer or when the like when the the lines have been blurred between dystopia and and reality or not maybe not dystopia but like pretty i think viruses before this a pandemic just i had only seen it in fiction or in movies so yep. what do you have what what are your thoughts
1: <laughs> so uh i'm in new england in the United States where uh, a lot of the local culture and economy is based around telling and retelling the story of uh, the first European settlers. So we just had Thanksgiving in the United States, which is, you know, based around retelling that myth. And I think as I've gotten older and, you know, tried to check my own biases, I realized that I was implicitly raised to think of indigenous North Americans or Native Americans or first people, depending on where you are, you might use a different term. I was sort Mm -hmm. of raised to believe that they were like an extinct fantasy creature. And this was reinforced by the kinds of you know, mass culture, children's entertainment, like the, the Disney cartoon Peter Pan has like, hmm. oh yeah, you know, fairies, pirates, and so-called Indians. These are all these like, you know, basically elves, right? Basically just like made up stuff, live on this child's fantasy island. And uh, <laughs> that's messed up. And And so as I got older, I realized that, you know, the the real history and the real story happening around me was one of, first of all, Indigenous people are still here, not only in North America, but in New England, and uh, would have a really different perspective on when the end of the world is. Mm. And so, you know, as I started listening more sensitively and more carefully to people uh, with those experiences. And I can specifically recommend a book on this topic by Nick Estes, who's who's a a Sioux Native American academic. He has a book called Our History is the Future. And it is centered around uh, the fight to defend Standing Rock, which is, you know, the sort of water resource that got a lot of media attention. Uh, as As people were trying to build pipelines through it a few years ago, but it's it's also a wonderful critical look at indigenous resiliency and uh, time, and sort of this idea of what what we think of as as the the worst thing that could happen. And so for me, i I feel a little ambivalent about things like post-apocalyptic as a term because I'm a very serious person at the end of the day. And I feel like the idea of calling something post-apocalyptic is like, well, we're already there, depending on who you ask. You know, if you ask somebody who who has survived, you know, a genocide, who has endured despite hundreds of years mm. of complete systemic violence, you know, if you ask, uh, you know, somebody who's descended from uh, the chattel slave economy of the United States, and I can't speak for the rest of the world. I only have this this perspective as a North American. But you know, w- when when the end of the world was is is a uh, is a really different place in time. So I say mid-apocalyptic because uh, I think it's important to reflect negative things in the world mm-hmm. and negative emotions. I am I'm not of the belief that. Being hopeful and, and uh, utopian all the time is like the bomb that we need. I personally gain a lot of strength and focus and inspiration from, from, the, from affirming that like we're angry, like people are angry and in pain. And so seeing anger and pain reflected in fiction for me is not discouraging, it's, it's invigorating. And so I say mid-apocalyptic because I want to emphasize that, like, these are ongoing problems. They have precedent. They've happened before. They're still happening. They're not the boogeyman of the future. They're now. And we can, we can participate in the now. We live in the now. So if we're in the mid-apocalyptic, then we have the ability to respond to it. If we live in a post-apocalypse, it's almost convenient. It's like, oops, that happened. I don't have to do anything. And I think that's why it's so dismal to some people. So, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe that again is like thinking too hard about it. But I, I do try to take, I do try to take my words seriously, even if I can't always take myself seriously. Hmm.
0: Yeah, um, this is this is a pretty interesting way and pretty, pretty uh, a great a great perspective to think about apocalypse in general and about for sure like everybody has a different every culture has a different um, history of of a lot more <laughs> difficult times and when you ask different people they'll have different versions of when the worst time was for many people pandemic was not the was not the, not the end of the world, but, but they had already been facing a lot more difficult issues.
1: Mm. I, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that, like, I, I don't want to come off as a know-it-all also, right? Uh, for many reasons, Um, you know, the American perspective and the English language are sort of, like, mm. always centered, Um, and so, like, my disclaimer here is is not that I'm like somehow wiser than any like anybody else. I don't know what these ideas mean to people in you know other other contexts, and um, they might they may or may not be relevant. So mm. you know, grain of salt here is that like these are these are my experiences and my reasons for writing what I do, but I mm. don't mean them as a prescription for anybody mm. else.
0: Thank you. For that disclaimer but uh yeah but i do think that like, i hadn't thought of <laughs> um i hadn't thought of the um uh, mid apocalyptic that uh, that um heavily so I think personally it did like it has um awakened more thoughts <laughs> about <laughs> my own privileges i guess so thanks for that <laughs> but uh, um, moving on to the next question. In your stories, you borrow from myths, folklores, and other traditions. In As Tender, Feet of Curtain Girls Danced Once Around an Altar of Love. You view the Minos myth from a different perspective. In I Am a Beautiful Bug, you append Kafka's commentary with the protagonist who desires to be a bug. What do you think is the significance of retellings, especially reclaiming stories from a marginalized lens?
1: I love retellings. I don't always do them, but there are a number of them, as you noticed, in my collection. And uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, sort of the contemporary fairy tale genre, as it's called, which is sort of just like a a very explicitly you know, so, so, which is sort of like explicitly committed to to taking familiar things and retelling them again and again. There are, I found, infinite ways to retell the same story, even the relatively short one. I'm I'm interested in things like folklore and, and urban legends and stuff like that, too. And what's fun for them about me is that you get to play with expectations specifically. And so if you're telling something wholly original, you know, you are doing something different. You are sort of trying to inform and... Uh, Pull in your reader at the same time. When you're doing a retelling, in a lot of ways, you're not informing your reader; you're reinforming your reader, and that's a different emotional process. Uh, It's just a different intellectual process, and so you get to do a lot more (laughs) gymnastics with expectations themselves, right? So we, if we all know how the story goes, so to speak, then changing the ending or or giving an implicitly different resonance or meaning to the same actions can be for the writer a great deal of fun, and for the reader it it brings a kind of surprise to something that is by definition you know so familiar. And so I just I think there's a lot of value in it. I think you know people uh, a lot of writers who are interested in retellings uh, specifically uh, are very interested in taking, you know, background characters or less privileged characters or something like that and giving them the perspective, right? You, take, you can take a kind of story about, you know, a, a member of the royalty and then turn it on its head by giving the story protagonist perspective to some, some background, you know, uh, nobody, some, some person who's just sort of in the setting. That can be a really fun exercise, I think, in what I was mentioning earlier about looking at who has the most to lose, and and exploring kind of a different ideas about suspense, like the stakes of, you know, oh, this character matters because if they don't get what they want, we lose the whole kingdom. Those are very exciting stakes, but I'm, <laughs> I'm like I like smaller things actually. I like quieter stakes, and so. I would, uh, I'm very interested in the way that like the world kind of doesn't necessarily fall under the control of plenty of people for whom pretty small changes can be like devastating or or enormous for their lives. And I'm interested in those things too. So I think, I think some, some people are interested in that. For others, it's like, it's an exercise in, in style and form and in manipulating kind of like. How much fun it can be to be formulaic, and when you do a retelling, you give yourself kind of meta permission to be very formulaic, and that can be a blast uh, as a as a writer and a reader. You know exactly how it's going to end. It's not about spoilers, right? It's about having a great time. So, yeah, I think I think I'll leave that there, right? I think I think when you are are doing a retelling or reclaiming uh, from a marginalized lens so to speak you can you can you can have fun with something that wasn't necessarily designed with you in mind and that Mm. always has the feeling of getting away with it a little bit which makes me feel like you know a 14 year old putting graffiti on the school desk it's just it's a little fun it's a little fun right
0: yeah yeah and I I absolutely love I'm a beautiful bug because (laughs) I, I wasn't expecting that because I have Kafka's Metamorphosis has, I really liked the, that text in college when I was reading it, and i, I wasn't expecting yeah, I wasn't expecting the tone of the um like <laughs> like metamorphosis just gave me like a existential spiral, but the beautiful bug is 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 like it is also really funny, it also has a lot it raises a lot of questions about identity and and I love how you retained all the bureaucratic crap that is just that is the woe of living i guess but yeah uh,
1: <laughs> that story is my love letter to kafka because among trans people at least mm. there's kind of like a a thing that is a joke and not a joke at the same time which is that kafka is a is trans literature and and the joke that isn't a joke is that people would think, oh yeah, the Metamorphosis because he transforms literally, right? But yeah. uh, but actually, no. the the most oh. uh, tra- The most transgender Kafka is the Castle, where he's trying to do something bureaucratic that can never get done, <laughs> <laughs> because so much of transgender life is about paperwork and like a frustrating inability to satisfy. A certain like type of documentation of of your life and your body and your your status and you know the question of like citizenship and appearance and borders and you know what kinds of information about our bodies is considered identifying and important mm. and 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 um, subject to to monitoring is like to me a much more transgender theme in Kafka than waking up as a bug mm. and so. With this in mind, I was like, right, waking up as a bug is the least transgender part of Kafka, <laughs> because most of the trans people I know are very funny and weird, and they would probably go, hell yeah, I'm a, I'm a bug, that's fun. You know, I'm a bug, at least I'm not a boy, you know, or something like that. And so I, I, that's my love letter to Kafka, because it's just like, you know, the bug is the fun part. So what if that was like the cool part, and it was everything else sort of inspired by the castle? uh as well that was like the tedious part and I'm glad I'm glad that it's connected with a lot of people because (laughs) you wrote it very quickly (laughs) how it would come together and I'm glad it did
0: yeah I totally loved it (laughs) yeah and also I think for moving forward a beautiful bug is also a great work of like it also has a lot of body horror and Uh and before we talk further about body horror can you please (laughs) for the listeners describe the genre of body horror writing and what does that
1: mean? Yeah so I actually just finished teaching a class for Catapult called Reading Body Horror for Writers which is a a 4 session class where we read Types of body horror, short stories, and and essays, and and we sort of talked about this issue. So I'll I'll spare you four weeks of lectures, but the short the short answer, believe it or not, is the term body horror comes from film, and it was originally coined by people writing about monster movies, basically horror movies in the 70s and 80s and and such. When the special effects were getting so good. That, you know, the monsters were, were no longer like Wolfmen and creatures from the Black Lagoon, but were like disembodied heads with tentacles coming out of them, like that kind of stuff, right? And horror film had really taken on a level of uh, explicit grotesqueness and, and like violation of what we perceive as the human body in, in a way that wasn't like technically possible before then. So that's where the term comes from. And it's now been 40, 50 years, closer to 40, I guess, since that term emerged. And I think it has evolved, right? So I have a different meaning for that term. And I think people have kind of complicated, reacted to, responded to body horror and the idea of body horror. And now it means many different things. And so one of the most wonderful things that I've noticed with body horror coming into maturation, especially in literature, so not just film, it's, you know, definitely there was body horror literature before the term existed, but like now it's really got a self-awareness to it, I think, is that uh, more and more people are interested in uh, the, the monster's point of view, so to speak. So uh, rather than a story about like, a grotesque blob that terrorizes a family like actually i want to i want to know what the blob's thinking about right <laughs> so i think body horror is kind of, is starting to come into its own where horrific bodily experiences are being complicated by their social context people are saying what about this monster makes it a monster what about this bodily horror makes it horrifying is it is it the fact that your body is changing or is it the powerlessness in society that you have because of how people are gonna treat you. And so I'm just seeing a lot more of that. I'm very interested in that. I think literature and film have influenced each other more than ever. And, and there's a, just a lot of really good stuff out there of, of a great breadth of diversity that you can you can have all kinds of fun with it. You could be pulpy, you can be very literary. But people are very interested in body horror because it's sort of it's sort of like, you know, a retelling. It's it's kind of a story that you can retell over and over again, even though it takes all these different manifestations.
0: Yeah, and I think, yeah, and I think it kind you kind of answered my next question.
1: Oh. But, sorry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but no, when I was thinking and you're talking, I was also I, I came up with a different with another question as well. So I'll just uh, I'll just club them together, but okay. I I see how prominently the body plays a part in in your narrative, in the mm-hmm. collection, and as as you were saying, when I think of the tradition of depicting like not normal bodies, right? Only negative things come up from Shakespeare's right. Richard the Third to Lo- Lion King's Scar. Impersonal mm-hmm. bodies were usually like a shorthand to elicit fear and portray evil but right. at the same time i was thinking about especially as a queer person myself i was thinking mm-hmm. about how most queer bodies are usually fetishized in right. in narratives so it's usually it's 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 an either or maybe you are a sexual deviant or or like morally grey character or some or or you are evil so how mm-hmm. do you what do you think of this tradition how do you escape this in your own writing
1: I think for me, it's important to be aware of those things, but not let them, not let them hold you captive. So all power to them. Some writers really, really want deliberately to avoid evoking those negative stereotypes, right? They really feel uncomfortable with like a gay villain, right? Or a fat villain or all these other things that are very tired shorthand for, for evil. And I, uh, deeply sympathize with that impulse. Personally, I'm, uh, kind of, I'm kind of a degenerate. And so I, uh, I really think it's also fun to take those things at face value and say, okay. And, you know, is it any surprise that this type of person that you've treated so poorly might, uh, have like angry or selfish motivations right so i personally am less interested in eliminating or or you know cutting free of this this awful history of uh stereotypical you know moral shorthand and i'm a little more interested in having some fun with it i think that you know a physically different morally gray character can be wonderful if the writing itself lends them complexity or dignity or even just like a good sense of humor, right? And so I think some people are having a little more fun with it and and they might think like, yeah, but you know, she gets all the best lines. <laughs> and and I think that we we can have some fun remixing these things too. I I, I, do understand, I, do understand the desire to sort of not spend eternity responding to tropes and stuck with tropes, but I don't think it has to be either or. I don't think you have to have like a world in which oppression doesn't exist or a world in which all the oppressed people are bad guys. I think you can be honest, which is that, you know, in our lives we probably know a lot of other people who share our marginalizations, right? And some of them are assholes. (laughs) And some of them are assholes for really sympathetic reasons, but we might not want to invite them over for dinner, huh? (laughs) So I'm interested in those characters. I think those are very interesting people to read about. (laughs) It just depends on if you're doing it with a kind of love. I think um, the traditional way to do it is to do it with disgust. And I think if you can portray difference that is, you know, considered abject, if you can portray it with a sort of love that also holds it up to the scrutiny of like, okay, this person's very morally gray, but they're not gross for the reasons you think they are. That can be great. That can be really fruitful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great way to look at it. And I was thinking about so many. And now, like there has been a lot of commentary on how a lot of Disney villains are very queer coded, and oh, but yeah. they were so much fun. Like
1: they
0: so much I fun. Know, yeah, the Little Mermaid. I, I'm forgetting her name, but I love the songs that um, oh, Ursula. Yeah, um, Ursula's songs did, and her like her whole attitude is amazing.
1: Yeah, so she's she's beloved. So many. Drag queens and like, frankly, like funny fat women, especially queer ones, love to dress up as her for Halloween <laughs> or for a costume because she's great. You know, she's she's memorable. She's I, I've heard that she's inspired by or based on Divine, the uh, mm. John Waters, uh, you know, actor who was like in real life like actually kind of a terrible person. <laughs> i'm like that's fun like you know uh, disney did something very mean kind of in that portrayal but mm. uh but the viewer the viewer brings the other half of that experience to the movie and you can you can have all the fun in the world with with ursula or any mm. of those books, right i yeah. personally i love i love gaston from Ooh, Beauty yeah. and the Beast. he's so over the top <laughs> And uh, he's supposed to be so loathsome, but he's hilarious. He has some (laughs) of the best lines in the movie. He sings the line, I use antlers in all of my deck or raiding. Like, that's the funniest lyric in the whole movie.
0: Mm. I think uh, moving on from all the Disney reminiscing, (laughs) but (laughs) when we're talking about identities, I was wondering during my research, I came across your collection in a list of best trans writers to read. And I was curious to know about your perspective on the correlation of one's identity to their work, because I feel like labels do help increase recognition for uh, marginalized narratives and voices. At the same time, do you personally feel that it limits the way you would like people to perceive your work, or even the way you perceive your own work?
1: Yeah, honestly, yes. Like I feel very ambivalent about being a so-called trans writer, right? And so I I worked with a publicist to when when I released my book, uh, which was which was tough. I uh, in re- coming out with a debut the same month that the pandemic really hit a lot of places in terms of lockdown was an experience. But you know the one of the things that I like about publicists is they they're very honest with you about whats is and isn't isn't going to work, and I came into it very like anxious about being pigeonholed. I didn't necessarily want to be marketed as a trans writer because I felt that I would lose readership who would appreciate the book, who thought it didn't have anything to do with them because there's more to me than that and there's more to my writing than that. And I also thought that I would gain readership that wasn't necessarily appropriate. I think something that happens when you have a, A book that comes out in paperback with a pink cover and is marketed as, uh, you know, queer lit or trans lit is it gets it gets further marginalized and shelved with uh, young adult fiction, which Mm. isn't to say that there's there's anything wrong with young adult fiction, but I don't write it. I don't read young adult fiction. I'm not writing in conversation with other young adult fiction and I'm not intending for young adults to be my main audience. This is not to say that if a teenager reads my book and loves it, that there's anything wrong with that. But that's like a really specific market mm. and a thing that happens to a lot of um, queer writers of uh, science fiction and fantasy, and a lot of uh, you know women too, frankly, just like people who write fantasy and have a, a lady's name on the front of the book is it sort of is like, oh, this is for like children. This is like, this is like about identity to make you feel better. And that is a perception that I was very uncomfortable with. And so I came to the publicist and I was like, look, I don't want to lead with the trans thing because I don't want to answer the same question about myself and my identity in every single interview. I want people to talk to me about the book. I want, you know, broader readership than that. This is not the only thing that's going on in the book. It's also a book about working class jobs. And it's also a book about religion. Like there's a lot of stuff going on in there. And they, bless them, came back to me and said, We understand your concern, but actually, this is going to help you sell it. And I was like, Okay, (laughs) fine. And so they convinced me in marketing terms that I should keep the trans writer label to because so much so many of the characters in the themes were trans heavy that they just figured that it would it was the best way to market the book and that's how the sausage is made it's like it's a decision and i feel very ambivalent about it all of the time and i do get negative feedback from people who are like i read this and it was upsetting this is not positive representation it should come with a trigger warning, you know, and it's like I didn't that's not <laughs> that's not what that's not what I intended. So I, I feel bad because I don't want readers to be disappointed. But I'm also very I, A thing can happen with identity based literature where you can sort of set yourself up. Uh, so that people within your own community are like, well, this didn't represent me so now, how dare you call this trans literature? I'm trans and it, I don't relate to it. And it's like, I personally would never make the claim that my book speaks for all trans people or is even primarily about trans people. I went back and I looked through it and actually there's a ton of stories that have no trans people in them whatsoever. There's there's just enough that apparently it's, you know, flavored the whole batch. Uh, but, you know, it it's complicated and and i guess i feel a little more at ease now with the label because i understand that it is a marketing label at the end of the day and it's not a genre it's not a political class it's a market it's it's about it's about you know putting things on the bookshelf where people are going to find what they're looking for but that said i was honored by lambda literary this year with a Lambda award for this book. And I would like to point out that the category in which I was honored was not trans literature. It was science fiction fantasy and a short story collection by a trans writer was honored uh, against novels and, and was not, you know, sort of pigeonholed into Translit as this, like, box where all the trans writers go. And that felt good, right? It's not that I would feel bad (laughs) if I had won a Lammy in another category, but it (laughs) meant a lot to me that uh, somebody saw the value of my work as science fiction, Mm. right? Yeah.
0: I don't think there's an easy answer to this at all. Okay. <laughs> it is art tricky. But and congratulations for the Lambda. Um, thank you. It's a huge honor. Yes, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I think it is it, it goes both ways. <laughs> it's a it's a it would like creating awards for different identities is also a little problematic, but also it does create recognition. So, <laughs> right. so there's no, like, there's no plain and simple answer to right. it.
1: Yeah. No, it's, there's no simple answer. Mm. Right. Because if you, if you get rid of, if you get rid of the category of trans fiction, then I'm willing to bet that there'll be so many less trans works, you know, up for recognition at all. Right. Yeah. It's like, it, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying that it's complicated and, mm. and an ongoing conversation. Yeah, agreed. But thank you so much for
0: sharing your experience of uh, of how the market is uh, is organized. I guess i I didn't know this. This I didn't know that it was uh, uh, about like the fact that it's you know grouped together with YA fiction and and points like that.
1: Yeah, and like for for anybody listening who loves YA or who writes YA, <laughs> please know that this is not a diss on YA. I have friends who write YA, I respect them. But the fact of the matter is I'm not in dialogue with that work. I'm simply not, I'm simply not doing that. And that's, you know, that's an important thing so that the reader is not frustrated.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I guess that's pretty true. (laughs) I was also pretty interested in how you work with different media like mm-hmm. games, novels, short stories, please. Is there a different way in which you approach this me- these mediums and is there a medium that you're most comfortable with and are there like pros and cons
1: of each medium? Yeah, they lend themselves to different things. I started writing more games when I felt kind of the well was a little dry on short stories for a while. And uh, I started actually writing more games because I was coming up almost with like uh, re- like rhetorical tricks to force myself to write stories. So the games began kind of as like, if you play this game, you'll have written a story. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like a kind of like an exercise for myself uh, <laughs> in, 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 uh, in getting back into the habit one of the fun things I discovered is it you know, it turns out games are enjoyable in their own right. some some writers will uh, i've talked to I've talked to other writers before where they've said, "I really just enjoy the world building. I actually have all these great ideas for a world. You know, I have this really detailed political history and magic system, all this great stuff. They're very imaginative people, and they feel kind of embarrassed or frustrated because. like, I still haven't come up with a character to do anything. (laughs) I don't know what the plot is. (laughs) And you know what games are perfect for that. I think I don't think these people are half formed writers. I think they're fully formed game writers and, and that's just as valuable. And so if you really enjoy coming up with scenarios, limitations, specifically the kind of magic system or, or political situation where there's like give and take that kind of thing, try games, because actually, it's really, really hard to write a good role playing game. And a lot of the writers who have what is sometimes called the world builder's disease, where you world build and world build but you never get around to like coming up with any people doing anything. Actually, you've just like created a wonderful scenario for other people to tell stories. And that is special. And that is valuable. I hesitate to say this but there kind of are no bad ideas it's just there's bad executions or like inappropriate forms for ideas right you can you can make anything into, (laughs) into something if you find the way it's supposed to go and and it's similar with writing plays it's like if I'm writing a story and it's getting really dialogue heavy and I realize this all takes place in one room and it's just two people talking And I'm kind of like in love with the banter here and then nothing necessarily, I don't necessarily need to know what they're thinking because they're saying a lot. I'm like, this is not a story. This is a play. Right. So if I find myself a little bit too indulgent in a story draft where I'm like, wow, there's a lot of chatter and it like it doesn't really work as prose. I see what happens if I make the whole thing into action and and dialogue and i take away all of the interiority and i just lay it out as a script and i'm like oh it's a play <laughs> so you know that that's that's basically why i write different stuff some some ideas just lend themselves more strongly to to one form than another uh which which is probably why adaptations can be so hard and mm you know when you see something that you love to read adapted to the screen for example and it's like frustrating or it's surprising or it's really different it's like yeah you know these are actually two separate works of art you know like a a, a movie based on a book is not you know actually another version of the book it's a totally separate thing that is acknowledging its source material but like they're just capable of different things and so sometimes really entertaining books like the movie flops, and it's because somebody along the way like didn't notice that, like what was good about this is not going to translate. <laughs> 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 and sometimes it excels. There are some books that are so you know that are so like movie paced, and when you read them, you're like, oh, this is like already halfway to a screenplay. And then you mm-hmm. see the movie, and you're like, right, perfect. You know, so like you know, different forms of different things. And uh, some ideas are just going to come out better in another form. And I think that's a, that's
0: also a pretty great advice for whoever is listening and creating their own, uh, world. And then, and I hadn't, and not even thought about like game writing, lending itself so well to like store it, and like connecting it to world building. But when you say it, I do. I do realize like how elaborate all the games that we have, you know, grown up, uh, you know, playing. They're, they are the setups are pretty elaborate, and they would lend if a story was to happen in that, that would lend to a full like length novel. I would love to leave our listeners with some recommendations, so what are, like some contemporary books, or publishing platforms, or authors. Or you would recommend people to check out, especially if they are looking for sensitive portrayals of marginalized voices?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. I don't know if I can promise sensitive because I, I have a irreverent sense of humor. But uh, this is a hard question for me because there's so many things I love. Uh, but I can tell you what I have been reading and enjoying lately. I am a slow reader. So it takes me a long time to get through longer novels. And I am happily making my way through a novel called Summer Fun by an author named Gene Thornton. And, you know, uh, it, it is it is about uh, fandom and trans women and uh, American 1960s pop music. And, and that's all I can really say about it because it's, it's really worth exploring. It's an incredibly rich epistolary style novel that really, really relishes uh, each little moment and is such, it's like kind of a sad book, but it's sad in a way that's very, very satisfying, like a good meal. Uh, and Gene Thornton is, is one of my favorite, you know, like living, working uh, trans authors or authors in general. I'd recommend that. There's a a website called itch.io that is uh, originally made to distribute independent video games, but for which a lot of independent, uh, very like underground punk rock kinds of authors have published their work as PDFs for free or sliding scale or, you know, very low amounts. And I actually would really suggest searching that website for, you know, curated lists of, uh, of like books. And you can search specifically for books on there. And there's some really out there stuff uh, that will appeal to, I think, much more niche audiences. But if you're looking for something that you're really not going to find anywhere else, there's some really talented people putting their work up on there. I recently got a anthology uh called the new abject tales of modern unease and uh it's put out by let me double check here with the it's, totally it's put out by a, yeah it's put out by a press called comma press which i i believe they're based out of the UK and it's incredible so i was looking for more contemporary body horror stuff mm. to to read and also to you know Uh, teach in the class that I was doing. And Mm. this was one of the most surprisingly satisfying discoveries that I made was this book. So um, I'm reading that and it's like very, (laughs) it's not for the, it's not for the delicate stomach, but there is some incredibly sensitive portrayal of marginalization in here because it does the thing I like where, you know, the, the authors and the perspectives and the characters that are given the point of view are often really diverse and it still deals very i mean it's it's many different pieces so i can't talk about it like a monolith really but i would say the book as a whole like deals pretty unflinchingly with like negative and horrific and uneasy things that are still very sensitive to the to the characters that they're happening to so so that's another thing that i've uh, been reading lately that i think is really good and i think i'll leave it there because Book recommendations are hard for me. I don't want to feel like I'm leaving anybody out. So I just take the the two things that I've been working on lately that I love the most and try to leave it there.
0: Yes, thank you so much. I have also noted all of them down and I'll for
1: sure um, check them out. These were great questions. Uh, Thank you for tolerating my long-windedness, but I rarely get questions this good. So (laughs) I was excited.
0: I think I've also thought a lot about what what like about your point the points that you made and i'm going to go back and i think have a lot of uh <laughs> thoughts swirling around in my brain so thank you so much for such a interesting conversation of course and i hope you have a great evening and i hope you have a great day <laughs>